Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. The story continued by Frederick Fairley, Esquire of Limerick House. The manner in which Mr. Fairley's narrative and other narratives that are shortly to follow it were originally obtained forms a subject of an explanation which will appear at a later period. It is the grand misfortune of my life that nobody will let me alone. Why, I ask everybody, why worry me? Nobody answers that question, and nobody lets me alone. Relatives, friends, and strangers all combine to annoy me. What have I done? I ask myself. I ask my servant, Louis, fifty times a day. What have I done? Neither of us can tell. Most extraordinary. The last annoyance that has assailed me is the annoyance of being called upon to write this narrative. Is a man in my state of nervous wretchedness capable of writing narratives... When I put this extremely reasonable objection, I am told that certain very serious events relating to my niece have happened within my experience, and that I am the fit person to describe them on that account. I am threatened, if I fail to exert myself in the manner required, with consequences which I cannot so much as think of without perfect prostration. There is really no need to threaten me. Shattered by my miserable health and my family troubles, I am incapable of resistance. If you insist, you take your unjust advantage of me, and I give way immediately. I will endeavor to remember what I can, under protest, and to write what I can, also under protest, and what I can't remember and can't write, Lewis must remember and write for me. He is an ass, and I am an invalid, and we are likely to make all sorts of mistakes between us. How humiliating. I am told to remember dates. Good heavens, I never did such a thing in my life. How am I to begin now? I have asked Lewis. He is not quite such an ass as I have hitherto supposed. He remembers the date of the event within a week or two, and I remember the name of the person. The date was towards the end of June or the beginning of July, and the name, in my opinion, a remarkably vulgar one, was Fanny. At the end of June or the beginning of July, then, I was reclining in my customary state, surrounded by the various objects of art which I have collected about me to improve the taste of the barbarous people in my neighborhood. That is to say, I had the photographs of my pictures and prints and coins and so forth all about me, which I intend, one of these days, to present, the photographs, I mean, if the clumsy English language will let me mean anything, to present to the institution at Carlisle, hard place, with a view to improving the tastes of the members, goth and vandals to a man. It might be supposed that a gentleman who was in course of conferring 
a great national benefit on his countrymen, was the last gentleman in the world to be unfeelingly worried about private difficulties and family affairs. Quite a mistake, I assure you, in my case. However, there I was, reclining, with my art treasures about me, and wanting a quiet morning. Because I wanted a quiet morning, of course Lewis came in. It was perfectly natural that I should inquire what the deuce he meant by making his appearance when I had not rung my bell. I seldom swear, it is such an ungentlemanlike habit. But when Lewis answered by a grin, I think it was also perfectly natural that I should damn him for grinning. At any rate, I did. This rigorous mode of treatment, I have observed, invariably brings persons in the lower class of life to their senses. It brought Lewis to his senses. He was so obliging as to leave off grinning and inform me that a young person was outside wanting to see me. He added, with the odious talkativeness of servants, that her name was Fanny. Who is Fanny? Lady Glyde's maid, sir. What does Lady Glyde's maid want with me? A letter, sir. Take it. She refuses to give it to anybody but you, sir. Who sends the letter? Miss Halcombe, sir. The moment I heard Miss Halcombe's name, I gave up. It is a habit of mine always to give up to Miss Halcombe. I find by experience that it saves noise. I gave up on this occasion. Dear Marianne. Let Lady Glyde's maid come in, Lewis. Stop. Do her shoes creak? I was obliged to ask the question. Creaking shoes invariably upset me for the day. I was resigned to see the young person, but I was not resigned to let the young person's shoes upset me. There is a limit even to my endurance. Lewis affirmed distinctly that her shoes were to be depended upon. I waved my hand. He introduced her. Is it necessary to say that she expressed her sense of embarrassment by shutting up her mouth and breathing through her nose? To the student of female human nature in the lower orders, surely not. Let me do the girl justice. Her shoes did not creak. But why do young persons in service all perspire at the hands? Why have they all got fat noses and hard cheeks? And why are their faces so sadly unfinished, especially about the corners of the eyelids? I'm not strong enough to think deeply myself on any subject, but I appeal to professional men who are... Why have we no variety in our breed of young persons? You have a letter for me from Miss Halcombe. Put it down on the table, please, and don't upset anything. How is Miss Halcombe? Very well. Thank you, sir. And Lady Glyde? I received no answer. The young person's face became more unfinished than ever, and I think she began to cry. I certainly saw something moist about her eyes, Tears or perspiration? Lewis, whom I have just consulted, is inclined to think tears. He is in her class of life, and he ought to know best. Let us say tears. Except when the refining process of art judiciously removes from them all resemblance to nature, I distinctly object to tears. Tears are scientifically described as a secretion. I can understand that a secretion may be healthy or unhealthy, but I cannot see the interest of a secretion from a sentimental point of view. 
perhaps my own secretions being all wrong together, I am a little prejudiced on the subject. No matter. I behaved on this occasion with all possible propriety and feeling. I closed my eyes and said to Lewis, "'Endeavor to ascertain what she means.' Lewis endeavored, and the young person endeavored. They succeeded in confusing each other to such an extent that I am bound in common gratitude to say they really amused me. I think I shall send for them again when I am in low spirits. I have just mentioned this idea to Lewis. Strange to say, it seems to make him uncomfortable. Poor devil. Surely... I am not expected to repeat my niece's maid's explanation of her tears, interpreted in the English of my Swiss valet. The thing is manifestly impossible. I can give my own impressions, and feeling, perhaps. Will that do as well? Please say yes. My idea is that she began by telling me, through Lewis, that her master had dismissed her from her mistress's service— "'observed throughout the strange irrelevancy of the young person. "'Was it my fault that she had lost her place? "'On her dismissal she had gone to the inn to sleep. "'I don't keep the inn. Why mention it to me? "'Between six and seven Miss Halcombe had come to say goodbye "'and had given her two letters, one for me and one for a gentleman in London. "'I am not a gentleman in London. Hang the gentleman in London.' She had carefully put the two letters into her bosom. What have I to do with her bosom? She had been very unhappy when Miss Halcombe had gone away again. She had not had the heart to put bit or drop between her lips till it was near bedtime. And then, when it was close on nine o'clock, she had thought she would like a cup of tea. Am I responsible for any of these vulgar fluctuations which begin with unhappiness and end with tea? Just as she was... "'Warming the pot. "'I give the words on the authority of Lewis, "'who says he knows what they mean, "'and wishes to explain, "'but I snub him on principle. "'Just as she was warming the pot, "'the door opened, "'and she was struck of a heap, "'her own words again, "'and perfectly unintelligible this time "'to Lewis as well as to myself, "'by the appearance in the inn parlour "'of her ladyship, the Countess. "'I give my niece's maid's description "'of my sister's title,' with a sense of the highest relish. My poor dear sister is a tiresome woman who married a foreigner. To resume, the door opened, her ladyship, the countess, appeared in the parlour, and the young person was struck of a heap. Most remarkable. I must really rest a little before I can get on any farther. When I have reclined for a few minutes with my eyes closed, and when Louis has refreshed my poor aching temples with a little eau de cologne, I may be able to proceed. Her ladyship, the countess... No, I am able to proceed, but not sit up. I will recline and dictate. Lewis has a hard accent, but he knows the language and can write. How very convenient. Her ladyship, the countess, explained her unexpected appearance at the inn by telling Fanny that she had come to bring one or two little messages which Miss Halcombe, in her hurry, had forgotten. The young person, thereupon, waited anxiously to hear what the messages were, but the countess seemed disinclined to mention them, so like my sister's tiresome way, until Fanny had had her tea. Her ladyship was surprisingly kind and thoughtful about it, extremely unlike my sister, and said, 
"'I am sure, my poor girl, you must want your tea. "'We can let the messages wait till afterwards. "'Come, come, if nothing else will put you at your ease, "'I'll make the tea and have a cup with you.' "'I think those were the words as reported excitably "'in my presence by the young person. "'At any rate, the Countess insisted on making the tea "'and carried her ridiculous ostentation of humility "'so far as to take one cup herself "'and to insist on the girl's taking the other.' The girl drank the tea, and according to her own account, solemnized the extraordinary occasion five minutes afterwards by fainting dead away for the first time in her life. Here again, I use her own words. Lewis thinks they were accompanied by an increased secretion of tears. I can't say myself, the effort of listening being quite as much as I could manage. My eyes were closed. Where did I leave off? Ah, yes. She fainted after drinking a cup of tea with the Countess, a proceeding which might have interested me if I had been her medical man, but being nothing of the sort, I felt bored by hearing of it, nothing more. When she came to herself in half an hour's time, she was on the sofa, and nobody was with her but the landlady. The Countess, finding it too late to remain any longer at the inn, had gone away as soon as the girl showed signs of recovering, and the landlady had been good enough to help her upstairs to bed. Left by herself, she had felt in her bosom, I regret the necessity of referring to this part of the subject a second time, and had found the two letters there quite safe, but strangely crumpled. She had been giddy in the night, but had got up well enough to travel in the morning. She had put the letter addressed to that obtrusive stranger, the gentleman in London, into the post, and had now delivered the other letter into my hands, as she was told. This was the plain truth, and though she could not blame herself for any intentional neglect, she was sadly troubled in her mind, and sadly in want of a word of advice. At this point, Lewis thinks the secretions appeared again. Perhaps they did, but it is of infinitely greater importance to mention that at this point also I lost my patience, opened my eyes, and interfered. "'What is the purpose of all this?' I inquired. "'My niece's irrelevant maid stared and stood speechless. "'Endeavor to explain,' I said to my servant. "'Translate me, Lewis.' "'Lewis endeavored and translated. "'In other words, he descended immediately into a bottomless pit of confusion, "'and the young person followed him down. "'I really don't know when I have been so amused. "'I left them at the bottom of the pit,' "'as long as they diverted me. "'When they ceased to divert me, "'I exerted my intelligence and pulled them up again. "'It is unnecessary to say that my interference "'enabled me, in due course of time, "'to ascertain the purpose of the young person's remarks. "'I discovered that she was uneasy in her mind "'because the train of events that she had just described to me "'had prevented her from receiving messages,' which Miss Halcombe had entrusted to the Countess to deliver. She was afraid the messages might have been of great importance to her mistress's interests. Her dread of Sir Percival had deterred her from going back to Blackwater Park late at night to inquire about them, and Miss Halcombe's own directions to her, on no account to miss the train in the morning, had prevented her from waiting at the inn the next day. She was most anxious that the misfortune of her fainting fit 
should not lead to the second misfortune of making her mistress think her neglectful, and she would humbly beg to ask me whether I would advise her to write her explanations and excuses to Miss Halcombe, requesting to receive the messages by letter if it was not too late. I make no apologies for this extremely prosy paragraph. I have been ordered to write it. There are people, unaccountable as it may appear, who actually take more interest in what my niece's maid said to me on this occasion than in what I said to my niece's maid. Amusing perversity. I should feel very much obliged to you, sir, if you would kindly tell me what I'd better do, remarked the young person. "'Let things stop as they are,' I said, adapting my language to my listener. "'I, invariably, let things stop as they are. "'Yes. Is that all?' "'If you think it would be a liberty in me, sir, to write, "'of course I wouldn't venture to do so. "'But I am so very anxious to do all I can to serve my mistress, faithfully.' "'People in the lower class of life,' never know when or how to go out of a room. They invariably require to be helped out by their betters. I thought it high time to help the young person out. I did it with two judicious words. Good morning. Something outside or inside this singular girl suddenly creaked. Louis, who was looking at her, which I was not, says she creaked when she curtsied. "'Curious. Was it her shoes, her stays, or her bones? "'Lewis thinks it was her stays. Most extraordinary. "'As soon as I was left by myself, I had a little nap. "'I really wanted it. "'When I woke again, I noticed dear Marianne's letter. "'If I had had the last idea of what it contained, "'I should certainly not have attempted to open it. "'Being unfortunately for myself quite innocent of all suspicion, "'I read the letter.' "'it immediately upset me for the day. "'I am by nature one of the most easy-tempered creatures that ever lived. "'I make allowances for everybody, and I take offence at nothing. "'But, as I have before remarked, there are limits to my endurance. "'I laid down Marianne's letter, and felt myself, justly felt myself, an injured man. "'I am about to make a remark,' It is, of course, applicable to the very serious matter now under notice, or I should not allow it to appear in this place. Nothing, in my opinion, sets the odious selfishness of mankind in such a repulsively vivid light as the treatment in all classes of society which the single people receive at the hands of the married people. When you have once shown yourself too considerate and self-denying to add a family of your own to an already overcrowded population, you are vindictively marked out by your married friends, who have no similar consideration and no similar self-denial as the recipient of half their conjugal troubles and the born friend of all their children. Husbands and wives talk of the cares of matrimony, and bachelors and spinsters bear them, Take my own case. I considerately remain single, and my poor dear brother, Philip, inconsiderately marries. What does he do when he dies? He leaves his daughter to me. She is a sweet girl. She is also a dreadful responsibility. Why lay her on my shoulders? Because I am bound, in the harmless character of a single man, 
to relieve my married connections of all their own troubles. I do my best with my brother's responsibility. I marry my niece with infinite fuss and difficulty to the man her father wanted her to marry. She and her husband disagree, and unpleasant consequences follow. What does she do with these consequences? She transfers them to me. Why transfer them to me? Because I am bound, in the harmless character of a single man, to relieve my married connections of all their own troubles. Poor single people. Poor human nature. It is quite unnecessary to say that Marianne's letter threatened me. Everybody threatens me. All sorts of horrors were to fall on my devoted head if I hesitated to turn Limeridge House into an asylum for my niece and her misfortunes. I did hesitate, nevertheless. I have mentioned that my usual course, hitherto, had been to submit to dear Marianne and save noise. But on this occasion, the consequences involved in her extremely inconsiderate proposal were of a nature to make me pause. If I opened Limeridge House as an asylum to Lady Glyde, what security had I against Sir Percival Glyde's following her here in a state of violent resentment against me for harboring his wife? I saw such a perfect labyrinth of troubles involved in this proceeding that I determined to feel my ground as it were. I wrote, therefore, to dear Marianne to beg, as she had no husband to lay claim to her, that she would come here by herself first and talk the matter over with me, if she could answer my objections to my own perfect satisfaction, then I assured her that I would receive our sweet Laura with the greatest pleasure, but not otherwise. I felt, of course, at the time, that this temporizing on my part would probably end in bringing Marianne here in a state of virtuous indignation, banging doors. But then, the other course of proceeding might end in bringing Sir Percival here in a state of virtuous indignation, banging doors also. And of the two indignations and bangings, I preferred Marianne's, because I was used to her. Accordingly, I dispatched the letter by return of post. It gained me time, at all events, and, oh, dear me, what a point that was to begin with. When I am totally prostrated... Did I mention that I was totally prostrated by Marianne's letter? It always takes me three days to get up again. I was very unreasonable. I expected three days of quiet. Of course, I didn't get them. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.